With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. Uh, I'm one of your regular hosts, Gregory Bosco, and with me as always for big number episode 60 is Derek. Say hello, buddy. Hello, hello. Happy 60. <laughs> I know. It feels like time's been flying and uh, we're going to do something a little different for this week's episode because we had to miss last week. I was, I was unfortunately traveling for work, um, but I got to pay those bills. So this week, we're actually going to talk about some news like we always do, but we're also going to talk about the most recent two episodes of Star Trek Discovery and Obel for Sharon. Or Sharon? Or Sharon? I, I was pronouncing it Sharon. Your, so yeah. maybe, I don't know. Sharon. There we go. And one that's much more easy to pronounce, uh, Saints of Imperfection. Obviously, both big throwback titles to the original series, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just, with the, just with the type. But we've got, there's been a bunch more Star Trek news lately, and... Uh, a lot more chatter with CBS and Paramount and especially the Picard show. So, uh, Derek, take over for a minute, buddy. Sure. So um, one little piece I just kind of want to get out of the way quickly is just some some numbers. Uh, Engadget reported that CBS has actually reached their streaming target two years early for their streaming services, uh, which is CBS All Access and uh, Showtime. So that's kind of a big deal. I know a lot of people out there who do not watch Discovery were just kind of assuming that most people were not paying for it. But they're two years ahead of schedule from where they wanted to be. They've reached 8 million subscribers, which is a 60% increase from last year, which is pretty pretty big. Um, and they've kind of increased their, their target then, their forecast. They have a goal of 25 million domestic streaming subscribers by the year 2022. I mean, that's pretty darn good for being a relatively new streaming service, especially for essentially it's almost normal television broadcasting. It's not premium like HBO or Showtime or something. Um, well, this, so, does, I mean, that's good. this does include their Showtime numbers. So CBS also owns Showtime. So this is okay. it's an even split right now with 4 million for Showtime and 4 million for CBS All Access. I mean, that's still pretty good, though. And I know people can gripe about CBS All Access. I don't know how to say this, but it's 2019, everybody, and (laughs) streaming is not going away. No. And I know people are joking that, oh, we're going to have so many streaming services, we're going to end up back at cable in 10 years. I mean, maybe. But streaming is here, and it's here to stay. Yeah, I mean, just for comparison's sake, um, 
Engadget added the Netflix numbers. And as of Q4 of last year, Netflix had passed 60 million uh, domestic subscribers. So U.S. subscribers, 60 million. That's pretty crazy. And obviously they're making enough money. In in this day and age, if shows and movies don't make money, they don't get made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, so that was just kind of interesting, uh, a cool little tidbit there. In surprising news, uh, this caught me off guard. Nickelodeon has uh, is in the process of negotiating a deal with CBS for a new animated, what they're calling a tentpole series for Nickelodeon that is Star Trek focused that will be separate from Lower Decks. Yeah, which is definitely probably more of a risk for what we're accustomed to with Star Trek, but not really because they did. They've always done pretty decent with comics on sales and visibility and distribution. Mm-hmm. And also, you and I have been talking about that. An animated show does run a little bit less of a financial risk if it doesn't do so well, and you can pull a plug on a financial show also pretty easily as well. We see that happen constantly. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and the the people in charge of it, the uh, the the show is going to be written by Kevin and Dan Hagman, who uh, that's a brother duo. They have done the Lego Movie and Troll Hunters. Um, they've got they've won Emmys, um, and so that's definitely a, a a strong pair there. Um, what's really interesting about this though is it is a partnership between CBS and Viacom. And for those who have done their homework and uh, and know their Star Trek history, Viacom used to own CBS and Paramount. So they used to own all of Star Trek. And Viacom split the two companies up at one point. And that's when you started to see the movie universe diverge from the TV universe. So there's been all these rumors that maybe CBS and, and Viacom would merge back together at some point and get the Paramount rights and the CBS rights back under one roof. Um, this is not that, of course, but it is a step in that direction to show a partnership between the two companies. Again, that's something we're seeing more and more on the big screen at Hollywood. More and more movie companies are either buying other companies or merging. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that... Uh, Instead of a diffusion of talent, it's almost like an F-fusion. I think that's the correct use of the word, where they're combining resources. And who knows, you know, in the in the long run, it could be a good thing. Especially you and I have been talking about that for a couple of years now. Getting the Star Trek canon stuff all stabilized under a single flagship would be, would be pre- uh, relatively nice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then just the last bit of news is uh, Patrick Stewart is currently... Um, on tour for the King Arthur movie that he was in, The Kid Who Would Be King. Uh, for those who don't know, he plays Merlin some of the time. Um, <laughs> you'll have to uh, read more about the movie to, to find out more about that. But he's been talking a lot, of course, about the Picard series in these interviews. And I got to be honest, he just is very excited about this. Um, he just kind of keeps talking about it, not really anything particularly detailed. Um, he, what I, what I really liked is this quote from him. Um, he had an interview with the Empire podcast, and he said, quote, I don't think anything has me as, uh, I'm sorry, 
I don't think anything has excited me as much as the prospect of this new Star Trek series is going to do. And that's a big deal to, to say. I mean, think of what this man has done. He's a Shakespearean actor. He obviously played Picard for many years. Uh, he's been in major films and franchises like the X-Men franchise. This is a very accomplished actor, actor and this is something that is incredibly exciting to him. Um, well, and that's and you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, Discovery has its ups and downs. And I know everybody's worried, you know, rightfully so. If Discovery tanks, what's it's going to do for the Picard show? But the difference with the Picard show, I think, is you have Patrick Stewart, who is heavily interested already talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, he talked a little bit more, um, basically saying that um, I'm just, I might as well just read this 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 block here. So, um Quote, we are hoping for more than one season, and with this first season, and this this is one of the things that is so interesting about the writer's room, they are writing a 10-hour movie. So in The Next Generation, it was a story, a different story, a different story, all with the same characters as as many series are. But this time, it is one story from beginning to end. I hope that will lead people to binge watching, because the idea of it being an unfolding narrative is really terrific. Well, there you have it, right out of the uh, the words of the creator himself, essentially. Well, he's actually a co-executive producer on this project, which is something he has not had before in the Star Trek franchise anyway. He did uh, get some producing credits in Nemesis, for example, but never executive producer. So this means, I mean, he has a lot of control over this. He was part of the writer's room. He was part of the pitch, right? He got to have his feedback and help shape what this is going to be at the end of the day i don't think anybody would stand up and argue that picard is not his character uh you're absolutely right he's he owns it and he's been saying this for 20 years he was he wanted picard to stay done unless it was the right atmosphere and right now he's saying it's right so he's he's got some plans and i'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he can pull off yeah absolutely uh, but that's pretty much it for news as as far as we go. Nothing else super exciting there. Well, I mean, it's still decently exciting. Uh, a lot of people probably didn't know about the Nickelodeon news. No, that one was a little surprising, I think, for many people, myself included. Yeah, so, I mean, we will see. But, uh, all right then, let's ju- how about we just jump right into our two episodes? Because this is a, this is, we don't usually do two episodes at once. Yeah, this is a little bit different of a format, I guess. <laughs> Well, you know, we were kind of talking, uh, and everybody, as you know, at Discovery, we kind of just have to jump right into spoilers. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't seen the episodes, um, you can keep listening, but we're definitely going to be talking about the story. Uh, so the first one that aired, that we watched and aired was an obol for Sharon, or Charon, mm-hmm. however you want to pronounce it. Um, definitely an old school, original series feeling vibe, because it's, uh, yeah, they're continuing the whole Red Angel search for Spock storyline, but this was a story in itself. It didn't, the, what happened in this from what we know is not related to the main plot. It was just, it's Star Trek. It's, there's a MacGuffin in space and they have to discuss and they have to explore it. Yeah. So the, the, the sphere is pretty interesting. Um, it, it definitely had that kind of classic sci-fi vibe to it of, it's mysterious. It's alien. Is it trying to hurt us? Is it not? You've got some people who want to just destroy it and get away. Other people who want to understand it. So it kind of had that battle of of fear versus exploration. 
Yeah, which was which was kind of neat. And, uh, you know, the episode opens up with, again, no name, but number one showing up on the Discovery because she has some information for Pike on uh, on Spock. And Rebecca, yeah, I don't know how, maybe she's got to come back at the end of the season because you don't cast Rebecca Romaine and then use her for two minutes. I I do have to say, and please, Greg, tell me if you think I'm off base here, but the fact that she still doesn't have a name, I think is for lack of a better word, kind of shitty. <laughs> well, it's... I, I know what they're trying to do with the whole trope, and that's just how she's always been known. Well, okay, that was 50 years ago, and now... it's, it's Now, okay, it's 2019. You cast Rebecca Romaine, who's a talented actress, a very lovely actress. She looks great in the uniform. Give her a name. Well, and, like, the first time we see her, you know, in the transporter room, and they don't say it, Yeah, I kind of chuckled. Right, like, okay, they're going to make me wait for it. That's fine. That's cute. But then she comes and goes, and the episode's over, and she still doesn't have a name. And um, He even refers to her as number one to Burnham, which to Burnham means nothing. Right? Like, that one was kind of forced. And I, it, it kind of bothered me that this is a character who has been in the franchise li- as long as Spock, right? Um and she still doesn't have a name. She was a first officer on the Enterprise, and she never got a name in in canon anyway. I know she she does get one in the books, and they could have just used that and moved on, but they they did neither. They kind of I don't know if they were too scared to give her a name that if they gave her one and people didn't like it, there'd be backlash. But I feel like they just they played it too safe here. Well, like you said, it felt un- like the first time it happened in the in the transporter room, it felt fine, whatever. But he said it, I think he said the name number one like three or four times. And the fourth time was definitely just like awkward. Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, th- I'm sorry, that's not how people talk. If I'm talking to a friend at work about our podcast, I don't refer to you as my co-host. I say my friend Derek and I are recording tonight. I can't, whatever. I don't, <laughs> I don't say the co-host is is busy or something. Right. That's exactly right. So it felt forced. It felt kind of clunky. It felt like they were really going out of their way not to give her a name, which I don't know. It just, it bothered me. I didn't appreciate that. It just felt, like I said, it just felt kind of shitty. And maybe she comes back again. Like you said, I mean, hiring an actor of her stature seems kind of odd to do if that's all we're going to get from her. Yeah. I mean, you could have. You could have found any walk-on just to throw in a yellow uniform or a gold uniform if you're not going to give her a name and have her say ten lines and order a hamburger. And right. I actually like, you know, the the home the like the the homey feeling of ordering a hamburger. I'm like, that's kind of like cool. That's you never hear that in Star Trek. It's always some. She's like, no, I just want a burger and some fries, and then I'm having a milkshake. I'm like, hey, that's kind of neat. Now I did like her. I thought she did a great job with the, with yeah. the small amount of content that they gave her. Um, I would love to see more, and I'm concerned that we won't. Well, and you know, I'm a, I've always been like this as long as you know me. I like when a char- like characters feel and look the part. If they wear the uniform well, they carry themselves well. And she did. She carried herself. She had very good posture. She had very good like voice uh, enunciation. She had very good presence on screen. I like that when they kind of do that. Because Star Trek's always been pretty good with with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With casting the right people and those right kind of those right kind of uh, uh, roles. And, you know, like, obviously the, uh, you know, Doug Jones was Saru, even though you can't see Doug Jones, 
he does such a fantastic job as Saru. And that's, you know, even though we only saw her for two minutes, you know, I'm just going to start calling her like Commander Galloway or something. I don't know. Or Henderson or Jackson. But she she was fun. And I hope they bring her back. I mean, they, they could even do, they could have given her Majel's name. You know, yeah, just at, keep give her that name as a way to honor, you know the, the the you know the mother of Star Trek, right? Um, you know, she Majel played number one in the cage, and later Nurse Chapel, and then Laxana, and the voice of the computer, and uh, was always a joy. And so, I don't think anybody could have been mad if number one was given her name. Yeah, you know. But anyway, they didn't do that, so I guess we can we can move on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because because they jump right back to engineering with the whole amorphous blob that it turns out it's another, it's actually a pretty complicated life form, which I mean they kind of alluded to last last week, anyways. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Definitely not a very pleasant looking one, so I kind of like how they give it that horror looking kind of feel. Yes, that was definitely the the tone. It seemed like that they were going for. Um, it's weird because like the Attili story is going on this whole time. And of course it's hard to care too much about it because at the same time, Saru is dying. Yeah. There's so much other stuff happening and complications happening that it's you, you know, what's that phrase, you know, human emotions can only be stretched so much across different stories Mm -hmm. because you have to know what to care about and why it's important. That's the that's the critical thing when it comes to storytelling is why is this important and why should you care? Right. And it, it really felt like Tilly's story was a longer story, whereas Saru's was going to be more immediate. So my emotions were focused on Saru because in my head, I knew that the Tilly thing was going to continue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, you know, I thought it was kind of cool that while, you know, they're dealing with that and they're, um, they're talking about the, uh, the character May and all this kind of jazz and the life form. I mean, so that stuff was was kind of neat. But then, of course, the MacGuffin of the sphere pulling him out of pulling him out of warp, which seems to happen to this poor ship plenty of times. <laughs> um, the sphere was kind of cool, though. I and you know, there's a lot of spheres in in Star Trek. You've got the Dyson sphere, for example. Um, but this was obviously very different. It was almost alive. Or it was it was alive. Yeah, you definitely kind of got that organic uh, creation of some kind, mm-hmm. that vibe from it, which again, you know, look, obviously looked great on screen too. It did, yeah. I mean, again, the show continues to use very high production value. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the best looking shows on on TV across the board with the look, sound, feel, visuals, even the camera work and. I'm not getting blinded by, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams sunbeams every three minutes. <laughs> Lens flare. Um, yeah. Yeah, but the, the sphere was really interesting. And I, I did love that the whole time, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, it turns out to be communication. It's desperately trying to tell its story. And that is something that I believe is incredibly relatable to humans. We want some type of legacy. We want to feel that our accomplishments, our work, our effort, our sacrifices that we've made will matter beyond our lifetime. And And that's something that human history has shown. Some of the earliest writing 
was developed so people could pass down stories in history. Exactly. You know, and whether that's somebody, you know, opening up research centers or charities or, you know, what what have you, writing novels and making movies and TV shows and plays and musicals to, to let things continue beyond a lifetime, this was very relatable. Now, of course, its lifetime was 100,000 years. Um, but I liked that at the end of the day, that's all it was, was it was just trying to show somebody else, look what I've seen. Yeah, and it it apparently has seen a lot, and I even kind of like the little opening scene issue with all the all the communication and languages going haywire. I was like, that's yeah, I know it's kind of goofy, but it was also kind of fun, mm-hmm. and it was just something we've never really seen on Star Trek before. I'm like, that's eh, it's at least kind of fun to mess around and do something different versus angry giant space sphere destroying the and the destroying the discovery again. Well, the way they played with the universal translator was a lot of fun because that's certainly not something. We've seen on Star Trek, DS9 did a, a small bit of it early on where, you know, the, uh, there's that uh, kind of virus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That Bajoran virus that gets released on the ship and everyone starts disassociating their words and so they can't communicate with each other. Um, that kind of, that maybe that's a seed of this idea, but... You know, there's so many languages that are spoken in this episode. And I, I love that Saru, it's another opportunity for Saru to shine and show his intelligence because he's able to speak. It was over 90 languages. And are, are we going to discuss the fact that Uhura in Star Trek 60 Undiscovered Country can't speak Klingon? That's very frustrating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, I sidetracked. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was fun. And like you said, it gives another example for Saru. And I like it because they have, like, I think it was Burnham immediately thought of, like, we need Saru up here. He speaks more languages than anybody on board. And Saru even makes a joke about it when he's trying to solve things. He's like, am I the only one person that bothered to learn another language? <laughs> and it's it's funny for us, right, because lear- learning foreign languages is still something that many of us struggle with. Language does not come easy to me. I, uh, I took Spanish. I took German. I struggled with both of them quite a bit. Um, and so it's funny for us, but at the same time, this is Starfleet. This, this is the Federation. You would almost think that it'd be a requirement to know other languages. Yeah. I mean, you would expect that. And I'm just going to say it in the 2250s, the technology we have in 2019, when it comes to learning languages, it's going to be 200 years more advanced. I mean, they're going to have tips and tricks that we just don't, we can't even think of today. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And again, it's entirely possible that Universal translators just made everybody lazy. But again, I don't think I don't think that that's the answer. I think they just wanted to have some fun. I guess. I mean, I, I think the issue there though is is that at the end of the day, the Universal translator is still a piece of technology. And if it's not a thousand, a hundred thousand year old space sphere disrupting it, there can still be technical issues, power outages, things like that, and then you can't communicate. No, I, you're absolutely right. You'd think they would at least be teaching them, I don't know, Vulcan and Endorian and some of the some of the least essential Federation languages at a minimum. Right. Like, I can totally understand them not knowing Klingon because we're not allies with the Klingons yet. But, yeah, Vulcan, Andorian, the founding members of the Federation. Yeah, I mean, the Tellarite language, I mean, at least at least those three, not just standard human English or whatever phrase they use. I think they but just call again, it Starfleet Standard, I think is what they call it. Yeah, Star, Starfleet Standard. And, <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, and the, the the pulling of the Red Angel really is what... Or the Red Angel. The Red Sphere is kind of what jumpstarts the rest of the whole, this whole story. Because at the same time, Saru's getting sick and Tilly's doing her thing. And um, it, again, this is one of those episodes where a lot of stuff is happening... To the, to the characters, but the overall Red Angel Spock plot's not really advancing. I mean, I know they're trying to hunt down Spock's shuttle, mm-hmm. and this is kind of throwing a wrench into that system. But again, it was this is a standalone episode. You can... It, we think it's a standalone episode. We, we could be wrong. Maybe this Red Sphere's connected somehow. But again, it was... This also, I have to... I, I, I'm skipping ahead here, but I have to talk about this, because it, it, it bothered me the moment I heard it. Remember how they're discussing how the the red sphere appears to have infected Discovery with like a virus? Yeah. And they're trying to figure out what what's going on with this virus and you know they're all well, it's hurting the ship blah 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 and Burnham actually says, "Well, it's not logical for a virus to kill a toast." I I'll admit I did a face palm. I was like, "Wait." I was like, "Did somebody mess up the script?" <laughs> I'm like, "Somebody messed up the script, right? That couldn't have that wasn't on purpose. I don't that was it." I, I don't it's know. Not, it's not logical for a virus to kill it. I know what she's trying to say, but I mean, as Saru is next door dying from a virus, and and they're saying that it's not logical for a virus to kill its host. I'm like, uh, it's I don't almost know why like, that got to me. It's almost like they thought they were talking about a parasite instead of a virus. And that's kind of what I was wondering, and especially because it. It kind of parallels what's going on with Tilly, right? Because the May mycelial parasite is not; it does she can't. It's not doesn't make sense for her to harm Tilly because she's saying she needs Tilly. So I thought they were trying to allude to that, but they used the word virus instead, and I was just like, maybe they just like to take so much they didn't want to change it, but maybe it was the wrong word. I don't know. Could be nothing. I could be reading way too much into a single damn line, but, <laughs> but I heard this, I heard this, it and I laughed. <laughs> this is a Star Trek podcast, so you know. Uh, <laughs> I can't be the only one that heard that. No. There's got to be others. No, I heard it. I heard it, man. I definitely did. Um so let's let's I guess this is a good opportunity to to talk about Saru and one of the big things about this episode is it's the first time that you kind of needed to see a short treks episode. Yeah, this is the one that had the biggest connection with short treks of all of them. And so that's uh, episode The Brightest Star, uh, which is this, known as the Saru episode. And we, we did review that one uh, way back before this, this season started. But um, without knowing that episode, if you missed it, I think you may have been confused with what was actually going on with Saru. 
Uh, I think especially referencing his home planet and the home world and kind of the society and his sister. Because mm-hmm. the Short Treks episode dealt with a lot of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you miss that Short Treks, you're probably kind of wondering, you know, why is Saru laying on a bunch of plants? Yeah, I mean, no one really would understand what's happening to him, I would think, if you uh, if you hadn't seen that episode, right? Because you don't know where he comes from. You don't understand, you know, when they say he's a prey species, what that really means. You know, it's not like lion stalking gazelle. That's not what his species is like. It's, it's very controlled and um, deliberate. You know, yeah. um, and, yeah. you know, it, they explain what the Vahara is in The Brightest Star. And they they go through it pretty quickly here. You know, they they, they mention the Ba'ul, which they explain more in The Brightest Star. And so I just, I feel like you would have been a little confused. But yeah, and I get what they're doing with Saru because it's, it's kind of hard. It's they're really developing his character to grow and grow more because. You know, if this show continues for three to five years, you don't want him acting like prey for three to five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially not with how quickly the fan base has gravitated towards him. Um, and, I mean, that's Doug Jones. Doug Jones is an absolutely phenomenal actor. And that <laughs> that shows this episode, um, it's hard to say for sure, but this episode very well may have been his finest performance oh i think it was and i even like the the relationship friendship between him and burnham because of how much it's grown from the very beginning to where it was just not i mean hostility is the wrong word but more of judgment and caution mm-hmm. and it's grown to where they legitimately care about each other and they're not doing some goofy romance it's a nice friendship where the two legitimately care about each other and you know, in this episode, he thinks, he believes he's dying. He believes that whatever's going on with the Red Sphere is triggering his, like, basically his prey response. And she's asking him, or he's asking her to help him die peacefully, which is very reminiscent of when Worf broke his back and asked Riker for the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I like the throwback and the tie-in with Next Generation. And it's it adds a little bit of intimacy among friends, which we don't get to see a lot on Trek. We get, we've always seen camaraderie and we've always seen like seen teamwork, but this kind of transcended that a little bit. And, you know, I've never been, you know, Burnham's never been my favorite character, but I think this was actually one of her best performances to date too, along with him. Well, yeah, I wanted to mention that like, yes, I'm, I'm praising Doug Jones and I've, I've been a fan of Doug Jones for a long time, but Sonequa Martin Green does an absolutely stellar job opposite Doug Jones in this episode, especially in his quarters at the end. Um, that is, again, it's hard to say, right? Cause we've had, we have so much Star Trek content, but it's gotta be one of the most emotional scenes in Star Trek. Well, and it's another reminder of what you and I have both kind of said the past couple of years. I get what they're doing with the human raised by Vulcans, but Sonequa Martin-Green's strength is when they let her be an emotional human, mm-hmm. I think. You can see the way she carries herself, the way her emotions react. It, it all feels real. So I'm I'm hopeful that they're starting to see that, just going, hey, she's been around Starfleet more, and she she's in love with Saru, not romantically. And, you know, a Vulcan would just say, oh, it's logical to help him die. And even she's like, it's, I can't because I care about you. And then she still tries. Um I, I still think it's a horrible way to do it, but that's besides that's besides the point. 
Um, now, just real quick, I have to plug something here because I don't get an opportunity to do this very often. But you mentioned the TNG episode where Worf breaks his back and asks Riker to help him commit suicide. Uh, the episode's called Ethics. And I actually wrote an essay on that episode that was published in a, in a book. Um, the book is called Outside In Makes It So by ATB Publishing. And my essay is in there. So if that interests you, it's a, a book of uh, basically a different author took on each ep- uh, everyone got an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, and they uh, everyone had a different format and things of that nature. And I had ethics. So, you know, just a little connection there if that's something that interests you. That's pretty neat. That's a that's a good one to have to have a discussion on, especially knowing the start the standards of Starfleet. Yeah, and I think you're right to show those parallels because it's a very similar concept. Um, in both stories, you have a character who uh, believes that their usefulness is is ending in some way. Of course, Saru thinks he's actually dying, uh, versus Worf who just thinks he is going to be a burden on people, and then. Each of them, they have a ritual that involves a dagger-like blade, and they need assistance from someone they consider to be family. Um, And it's very powerful in ethics. Uh, I think a lot of people forget that episode when they think about who Worf is as a character. Um, This episode really defines a lot about him from a, a growth perspective. And Riker, it really, man, does it show you a lot of Riker in that episode too. Um, Not to go off on too much of a tangent, but this episode here though, um, an an Oble for sure on that scene. No, I'm not going to sit here and say it reaches wrath of Khan Spock dying level or, or anything like that. That's, you know, that's a little different, but as far as episodes and emotional intensity, this has got to be, up there and um it was tough i really i was sitting there mouth kind of agape thinking i can't believe they're killing off saru in the beginning of the second season yeah i mean because you know some of the best performances i think in trek is you know picard in the drumhead when he's giving a speech or you know when the admiral's trying to take away data's daughter or data's daughter lol or um the ds9 episode duet with Eamon maritza some of those are always considered like top performances in a three to five minute span. And, you know, I, this may not be up there, but this is definitely probably the best two person performance we've seen on Discovery to date, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'm not necessarily saying that the, this this scene reaches the top level from an acting perspective, because it's, it's a very uh, the scene is somewhat basic in nature. You just have these two characters talking through this with each other. I'm just talking straight emotional intensity. Um, oh, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Yeah. It's, it's ratcheted up to 11, you know? Um, and uh, I mean, it's the episodes that you pointed out though, of course, those are the, the cream of the crop of the franchise. So it's just, again, another example of, I hope, I hope CBS and such is realizing that if they just let Sonequa Martin green be the actress that she is by nature, I think you have a better television show. And I think that's something that star, every Star Trek show, except for maybe the original series, had to learn over time. The original series, I feel like, fell into it very quickly. But all of the other shows started 
a little stale until the characters, the actors found their characters and started to, to insert more of themselves in them. That's why, you know, seasons four, five and six of, of TNG are, are so much better than one and two, you know, you are Um, absolutely right. Yeah. And, you know, discovery, maybe they're starting to find that out a little bit quicker, you know, than, than waiting three or four seasons, but either way, you know, that, that, bit was really amazing and again this is kind of another example of an episode where a bunch of stuff is happening because the power surge like freeze freeze the the may the may blob in engineering Mm because the the ship gets hit it gets hit with like an electromagnetic surge of some kind and uh it breaks free and you know anyways but uh then we finally see jet reno it reappears finally take the taro's character finally returned yeah, yeah, she's she's kind of interesting. Her her back and forth with Stamets um, felt a little hit or miss. Um, uh, it was it was hit or miss, and it was starting to border on a little annoying. Like as it kept going, I get what she's doing, and I get what he's doing. It's not bad. It's just all right. Can you two drop it? We're in a bit of a crisis right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, like I know they they're supposed to get dosed, right? They get kind of drugged, so to speak, by the May entity and I, it was a little, a little silly trippy to me. And maybe that was on purpose to kind of break the tension of some of this episode. Uh, but it felt just a little tonally out of, out of rhythm with the rest of it. Yeah, it, it was, it's trying, it's like, okay, these two have been beating the hell out of each other all episode long verbally. Now let's give them a little goofy scene and Hey, now they're friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the feel I got from it. And, you know, poor Tilly's got this thing stuck on her arm. And, you know, again, stuff happens. And, you know, uh, the, again, I don't want an engineer to do this, but, you know, then they drill a hole in her head, <laughs> which is always fun, I guess. And uh, she took that like a champ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, it was a good opportunity to allow uh, Anthony Rapp to sing, which... I've been like trying to figure out how are they going to let this man sing because, I mean, he's incredible. You know, that's his his background was stage performances originally. He was in musicals. He was in Rent, for example. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong, love him in, in Discovery, but I wanted to see him sing. And I'm so glad they found a way to let him do it for a minute. Yeah, let him do it for a minute and it kind of felt natural because he's trying to help her relax. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah, that was fun. Their dyna- I like their dynamic. I like Stamets and Tilly. I hope that that sticks around for a while because I think the two of them are just really nice together. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you know they <laughs> they drill the hole in her head so that they can talk to the May entity with like a little a little communications you know Deus Machina thing. And you know I I kind of like what they did with the little with the mycelium blob where it's. It's a little bit of a reverse, and she's trying to explain. She's like, you people are destroying my home. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're you're jumping in and out, jumping in and out, doing all this stuff, and you never thought of what your actions might do. Which is maybe building up to why the, you never hear about the sport drive ever again. Yeah, I mean, obviously at some point they're going to have to explain that away, um, and I think we're going to get some more of that in Saints of Imperfection when we start talking about that episode as well. But... Yeah, at some point that's that's all gonna have to to be written off, right? It's just a matter of time. 
Yeah, and you know all this all this stuff's going on, and you have the the parallel between Tilly and May trying to talk to Stamets and kind of all this jazz. But then they Saru and Burnham are able to kind of finally convince Pike that hey, you know this whatever this fear is, it's obviously not hostile. And even though the temperature inside of it gets to like solar level temperatures at one point, and everyone, which would be pretty terrifying when you're you know whatever five hundred kilometers away from what you think is basically going to be the equivalent of an exploding star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, but, it definitely seemed like a big deal, right? And I liked that the sphere pushes them away. Yeah, and, you know, they're finally able to realize and get all the communications fixed and figure out what the virus is and figure out that the sphere is trying to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. And they're weighing their options on... You know, realistically, that thing is so... The mass of that thing was so much that even the torpedoes aren't going to hurt it anyways. And I think I think that would have been kind of fun to have, you know, Saru kind of go that route as well. It's like, Captain Firing on it's not going to do anything. Look at the... This is simple physics, because Saru's so brilliant. But again, convincing him of the communications aspect of, you know, nothing else is working. This has a potential for a solution, and let's hear it out. And they do, and they get a lot... They get, you know... What they said their computer their computer was operating like twenty percent above normal as it was processing all the data. Right. Yeah. And you know they even, I, I they even say it's gonna they this gives them enough historical information for like hundreds of years of research in the future for Federation scientists, which again raises its own question of why did why isn't Picard studying this thing in the twenty three sixties? But well, somebody you know, probably was you know back at at Earth right because there's no reason for a starship yeah. to do it. No, there's not, but it's still, it's just one of those things where something, it's it's like you brought up before, it's when something like this happens in the past on a TV show, it's like, well, what, how do you reconcile it with the future? But eh, I'm not too concerned about that. I did like the little clip of uh, when Pike's in his office and he's listening to the historical records of some quadrant-based war a long time in the past, because this thing was basically just a traveling data archive. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's, you know... It's the thing that sent the whale probe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I know there's been books about the whale probe, but still, it's anytime I can, anytime I can reference Star Trek Four, I'm going to. Yeah, what one of those books is? With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just called Probe. I, yep. re- I read that one. <laughs> but that's really all that happens in this episode is they find the sphere and they use the sphere. Apparently one of the last things the sphere scanned was Spock's shuttle. So they're able to uh, solve, you know, his his course heading at least relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And the episode, you know, obviously Tilly's got to deal with the whole spore thing and, you know, essentially disappearing <laughs> into a horrible gelatinous mob or, you know, mass. Right. Which I think most humans have a fear, a natural fear of getting eaten alive. And that's, I think that's supposed to kind of give you that illusion. Yeah. Uh, so which it worked. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we should wrap up Obol for Sharon then so we can move on to Saints of Imperfection. Yeah. Um, Cause Imper- Saints of Imperfection basically picks up minutes after, after Sharon ends. 
Well, so we did do a Twitter poll. So every, uh, basically every Friday, we put out a Twitter poll for that week's episode, whatever episode premiered the night before. And you guys can vote on it for the next three days because we record on Monday nights. And so we uh, let you grade these, kind of letter grade. And um, Greg, before I tell you the results, how would you grade an Obol for Sharon? I would give it somewhere along like a, like a seven. But like a letter, or like, or like, a, like, a, like a letter, like yeah, no, I don't. I mean, more like a B minus. B minus, okay. Um, so I I liked it quite a bit. This was a really fun episode for me. Um, so I was gonna give it more like an A minus, um, because I just it it struck a chord with me. But our Twitter poll, sixty eight percent of voters gave it an A. Oh with, wow! With twenty uh, percent giving it a B, so eighty-eight percent of our voter base thought it was at least B or higher. Um, we did have seven percent at D or lower, which is the largest D or lower percentage so far this season. Well, again, maybe this, like I said, this kind of felt like a standalone episode, similar to the original series. And I mean, I that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it is not every episode has to advance the Red Angel plot. I mean, this still kind of does, but. It was it was a fun one off, yeah. So so that's out there. Don't forget, like at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter, and you can vote in these polls as well. We'll have one for Saints of Imperfection. We'll be talking about at the end here. So yeah, Saints of Imperfection, picking up right legitimately where Sharon ends off, and this is essentially, um, essentially a Tilly episode, not entirely, because you know they do catch up with uh, Spock shuttle. And there's a there's a nice little uh, nice little surprise in there. I'm so torn on this episode. I have to be honest with you. Um, I yeah, I don't. No, go ahead because I'm, I'm I'm still formulating a thought. So between the section thirty one stuff that happens in here, which I have, I think more problems with than not, and how they handled the return of Doctor Colber, um, this episode kind of rubs me the wrong way a good amount while still being a good episode. Um, and I just want to clarify for everybody out there. Uh, I actually love the character, Dr. Culver. Uh, Wilson Cruz is fantastic. If you don't follow him on, on Twitter, you should. Uh, so this is nothing about the character. I'm, I'm glad that he is back. Uh, his death in season one was incredibly shocking and sad and um i just do not care for the way they brought him back i think that it was overly convoluted uh overly contrived Uh, and i say overly contrived because i i'm not really a fan of when people call fictional works contrived because they're fictionally written so they're the whole thing is contrived but um from a semantics i don't want to argue semantics but i just felt like it was just so they were backed into this corner of either they when either the moment they killed him off they knew they were bringing him back or there was so much backlash and people upset for killing him off they had to come up with a way to bring him back but the way they bring back Colbert is so overly complicated and from my perspective nonsensical it just didn't work for me and you know, yeah, it's, I one hundred percent agree with you. Okay, because like this, yes, this is this is science fiction. There's some science fantasy. This stuff is not all real, of course. 
but I I need like some other episodes of, of Star Trek out there, I need it to I need you to convince me that this works in universe. And well, and when it comes to good storytelling, I've always been a big believer that the death or the threat of a death of a character needs to matter. And if any time it happens and it's a fan favorite, if you can just hand wave it away and fix it, I'm always going to question that kind of decision. And I think even though Denise Crosby left Trek under not less than happy terms on her part, not because she wanted to leave necessarily, but, you know, her character died. And it was important because then years later when they bring, you know, her quote-unquote daughter back, it had an emotional, mm-hmm. there was an emotional toll. And now Colbert died, it was a huge emotional toll on Stamets, and now he's back. And it's... It, it, it's the equivalent to me of, you know, obviously everybody's seen Game of Thrones, and, you know, Ned Stark dies, he gets his head chopped off, and, spoiler alert, by the way, and it's just, imagine if, like, three years later, there's, like, oh, there's magic to restore his head, and you're like, okay, stop. Yeah, no, I, I think that, and I think, for me, anyway, this issue was magnified by the episode placement, because this is the next week after... Opal for Sharon, which convinces you they're going to kill off Saru. And I had a discussion with a couple of my other Trekkie buddies about this, and they don't necessarily agree with me. So follow me on this one, Greg, and let me know your opinion. So last week, they can spend 40 minutes convincing us that Saru is going to die, and it leads to one of the most emotional scenes, absolutely in Discovery, and one of the more emotional scenes in Star Trek incredible performances by Doug Jones and uh, Sonequa Martin-Green, as we just talked about. And then he doesn't die. Magically, uh, he's okay. You know, he he lives on and he's stronger for it and it's all fine. And I let it go because of a couple of reasons. First off, you didn't actually kill him. You got right up to that line, which is something Star Trek and sci-fi do. And then it was a simple explanation. His fear ganglion fell off. It just fell off because nobody in his species had lived long enough or at least been able to return afterwards to find out what happens. They had just been told what was going to happen. They had been lied to by the predator species, the Ba'ul. That's a pretty easy concept for me. They had been manipulated and lied to into believing that this was a death sentence, but it wasn't. So that's why he, he survives. Okay. And then this week, just one week later, you take... A character who was loved, whose death was striking and intense, and in some cases, people found it deeply, deeply troubling. And you bring him back, but you do it in a way where, again, you tell us it's not going to happen, right? We find him in the Star Trek Upside Down, (laughs) the Mycelia Network, and, you know, he's... You had the big reunion with Stamets. It's really heartfelt. You, you know, you're feeling good about it. And then he can't cross over. Why can't he cross over? And then it's techno babble BS about how, well, they reconstituted his essence in the Mycelian network. So his matter is not compatible. Well, okay. I mean, I think it's more of a stretch to say that he was reconstituted at all, but we have to now add this extra layer of it being mycelian uh dimensional matter okay but so now we've been told oh he's back everything's gonna be great they've made up everything's good and now you you took him away from us 
Now you can't bring him back, so you've essentially killed him again. And then you come up with your little MacGuffin teleporter pod way of, of making it work. I Everything you said, I completely agree with and support. <laughs> and it's just, it cheapens stories to me when they can hand what... Because nobody wants death. I mean, I don't want to die, but death in storylines is an emotional thing that impacts the characters. And I think that's important because people grow with it. It's like... A good comparison is heartbreak, even in real life. When people suffer heartbreak, it's painful, it's sad. You're going to struggle for a while, right? You're going to you're going to question yourself. You're going to doubt yourself. And Stamets was kind of doing that. He was questioning. He's like, you know, my use of the Spore Network, you know, this, and you know, letting Ash Tyler on board, and all this. All he's questioning every decision he made because he got his love killed. And now, I, I, I swear to God, if next week he's just back as a doctor, like nothing happened. I'm going to be really, really, like, a little frustrated with that. Well, right. I mean, think about, I mean, that's that's a separate conversation, right? I mean, the, the PTSD you would think he would have at this point from being trapped in another reality alone, being hunted down by this other intelligent species must have been incredibly traumatizing. But, uh, yeah, I was, kind of, I was actually hoping when they were talking about a monster, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be Culver, it was going to be like the tardigrade. Like it turns out, some reason it just—it's all angry after what it, what it went through, and now it's just taking revenge on its own home, its own little home universe. Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting if it was something else. I had a hunch that it was kind of a bad kept secret that Culber was returning. Um, and again, like I said earlier, like I'm not upset that he's back. Wilson Cruz is a great actor, and his chemistry with Anthony Rapp is one of my favorite relationships in Star Trek. I don't like the way they wrote it. I felt like it was just, it, it was f- just all this kind of layered BS. And because it was a week after the Saru thing, you know, you're, you're toying with my emotions in the exact same way in back to back weeks. And now you're, you, and the second time you're doing it with a character that you've already killed. So if you're going to bring him back, just bring him back. Don't add the, we're going to bring him back. Oh, it didn't work. Now we have to leave him again. Don't do that. That doesn't help anything. That doesn't progress the story along. You know, it you, was you know it committed one of the worst sins on storytelling. It was lazy. Well, who's going to argue it? Okay, so he crosses through the you know he he crosses the barrier. Okay, is anybody out there going to try and argue about why that doesn't make sense? The fact that he exists doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So who's going to argue? That he couldn't cross the barrier. Yeah, I mean, and exactly. And plus, even when the May character was... She's like, oh, we don't know how we built them. We don't know how we're supposed to transport them. And then, like, three minutes later, oh, it worked. Yeah, exactly. Like, it just seems... It just seemed kind of silly. And it just didn't really make sense to me. Because, like... So let me ask this then. Okay, so they... It works because they reconstitute him in the Mycelian transporter pod which means he's being rebuilt with our universe's matter okay so what that means then is when tilly was transported from our universe to the mycelian network she was reconstituted with mycelian matter so how come she could cross the barrier okay that's we could do an hour-long podcast on that little scenario alone i never even really gave that thought but you're right right so they, Holy they, shit, man. they created their they created their own problem that they had to solve for Colber that wasn't necessary and in turn totally ignore that that would have created a problem for Tilly. 
Because it's the same situation. Why would it work for one and not the other? And now that I actually think about it, May was pissed because, yeah, the, the, the monster was messing up her universe, but she was also pissed because Stamets, you know, she thought he was the captain, was driving the Discovery, and every time it appeared in her universe, it caused problems. Mm-hmm. So they never actually solved the one problem that they were most upset about, but then they, they solved the monster problem, I guess. I mean, if you want to call it a solution. Yeah, I mean, that's true, too. So I guess, I mean, I guess they're not going to use the network anymore. Um which is fine, you know, whatever. Um, you know, it was interesting doing the the ship partly in in the network and partly not in the network. It it created some cool special effect notices uh, um, moments, but of course, it creates the it adds more problems to section thirty one. A lot of problems to section thirty one. Now, but the, I got th- I got to see my favorite Barzan Commander Non a couple more times. <laughs> she's cool did you see her uniform yeah it's, it's uh it, I, I don't know i love the character for some reason we never hear her that often and she's just we don't get to see we've, we've only ever seen like one bar saying on screen before and the, mm-hmm. the she's a she's an attractive actress and she is a good looking alien but she's also got a cool presence when she's just staring at tyler the whole time oh I mean, yes yeah. i kind of like that she, she doesn't trust that guy at all which is fine which is fine right that's her job uh, but her uniform is really neat. I I feel like she's the only one who's wearing that variant, but it's basically a, a disco scant kind of uniform, I guess. Yeah, because I saw the long, like the long tail when she when she like turned at one point, mm-hmm. and it kept making me do a double look. I I couldn't tell if, but yeah, it's definitely like a disco scant. I love it. So a- any of you disco cosplayers out there, I wanna I wanna see that. I thought it just looked really cool. Um, as a, as a little minor note, but so the, the section 31 stuff, so there, there's conversation going around, of course, that like in this era, section 31 is almost public knowledge in Starfleet. Everybody has heard of it. Everybody recognizes the badges and by, you know, the, the, the later shows DS nine and so forth. Section 31 is a secret in enterprise. It's a secret. Um, now there's a lot of reasons that that could be. It, it could have been supposedly disbanded at some point in the next hundred years and continued in secrecy. Like we don't, that's not really my problem. There's, there's ways to explain that away. Um, um I'm, I'm, I have to say this before I explode. I hate that section 31 just prominently displays their badges. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it with, okay. If you're going to be a secret spy organization that has great technology and cloaking ships, don't display the badges, put them in, to put them in a junky ship that I don't know that looks like a junky ship but isn't, and you give them give them Harry Mud style clothing. Who are these people? Oh, they're traitors. Okay. Well, that was the thing. Like Pike takes one look at Georgiou's uh, pin, you know, badge, and he's like, "Ah, Section Thirty One. Like it's just another division of of Starfleet. That's a little weird." Um, but the technology is crazy advanced. Like. Not only can the ships cloak, but they can disguise themselves as other objects. Yes, uh, they absolutely can. And I know that Starfleet, you know, doesn't have the Treaty of Algeron with the Romulans yet. So they can have cloaks for all intents and purposes. But this is one hell of a cloak. <laughs> and then you've got those crazy tractor beam emitter type things 
um, that are that are just really impressive, and the ship design is incredibly advanced. And I don't know, it's just it's this it, they've kind of just cre- created a focus on Section Thirty One, so they could have something to do with with Georgiou because they didn't really want to get rid of her. I think that's it. I, I mean. Everybody loved the actress Michelle Yao, and she did such a good job on screen. Nobody wanted her to leave. No. And Section Thirty One is, I mean, yeah, like you said in DS Nine, they were. I mean, okay, this is the this is the agency that infected the Dominion with a disease that almost destroyed their genetic code and prevented them from shape shifting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, and I know people can comment. Well, this is early on in their history. I'm like, I don't. I, no, it's not. Look at that ship. Look at their technology. Look at their resources. They've been around for a while at this point. Well, they they've been around for for a, a, a hundred years because they were they existed during Enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if so, you remember, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just okay. As an American citizen, I don't want to know if somebody's a CIA agent. I don't want. Don't tell me that. Don't show me your badge. It's like <laughs> you remember. Remember, like a year ago, that FBI agent was trying to show off at some restaurant. And he dropped his gun and shot someone on accident. Oh, it's like. It's like he was telling everybody, oh, I am an FBI agent. I'm like, all right, you're not Fox, you're not Fox Mulder, man. It's like Section 31, they're, I mean, we, you know what, how, it's it's the television thing of, how are we going to show that these people are, are advanced and look cool? I know, we're going to dress them in all black tactical gear. And, by the way, give them a badge. Like, I actually liked what Giorgio did when she had that one badge, like, on her belt loop. Yeah. I thought that was kind of neat. I was like, that's pretty unique, but... Ash Tyler was just wearing his badge out there. And I know somebody might say, well, he's a liaison. I'm like, I don't care. He's still Section 31. Well, that's the problem, though, right? He's a, he's a Section 31 liaison. So everyone knows he's with Section 31. Yeah, I mean, this is... It's just... It's weird. And I think... And I know what... There's probably some executive at CBS, like you said, that wants George, action for Giorgio and that Leland guy looks good. He, he looks the part of like a like a captain of a spy ship but it's almost like they're trying to show the audience that section 31 is cool and it's powerful but there's there's no mystery to him anymore i mean maybe i know there's still mystery but i mean dude they just walk around in the middle of the ship mm-hmm. no you're right and i mean even uh, admiral cornwell is part of the conversation she's on the section 31 ship it's not even like a transmission she's there yeah, and she basically feels like she's been there for a while, unless unless I'm completely mistaken. Um, then maybe I am, maybe she just arrived, but it's just... Again, it brings up questions on... I don't know, there's there's a lot of stuff we can talk about with Section 31, and at the same time, Section 31 is like helping the Discovery, because Leland and Pike were friends. But again, it's that... Okay, I hate to bring a Star Wars reference into this, and I know we're running long, but we're on a roll right now. Do you remember in Attack of the Clones when Kenobi and Skywalker are talking about all the stuff they did in the past? Mm-hmm. It's that it's this it's the unwritten rule of storytelling where you show you don't tell, and they're telling about their past in between each other between Anakin and uh, Kenobi, and that's what Leland and Pike do. They're talking about all the stuff they've done in the past, but. Like you as a viewer, they're trying to give you all that information so you can understand why Leland is there helping them. But at the end of the day, from a storytelling narrative, you're like, well, we don't have like an established relationship. It's it's section thirty one is just here 
helping the Discovery. And by the way, the whole the whole crew of the Discovery just watched them uncloak. So, you know, if God forbid, if there's a spy on board now that now everybody knows. Mm-hmm. No, you're you're right about that. Um, it it's it, it it felt kind of forced. It really did, but. It's also, I guess, the whole point is to show who Pike is. Pike and and Leland are mirrors of each other, right? Not to throw back to you know season one type stuff, but Pike is the good guy. He's you know the yellow shirt wearing, gold shirt wearing captain of the Enterprise. You know, and I actually like that because they put a line in there where Pike even admits that. I have to admit, you know, when he's talking to Leland, that my line of work is a little different and more clearer than yours is or something and i think it's important to note i think that it's you know it would be silly to ignore that the types of things section 31 is responsible for you know wouldn't happen right there have always been people who do seedy or bad things supposedly for good reason Especially in large organizations, whether it's a military or a country, you know, in this case, Starfleet. Um, so, you know, the fact that Section 31 exists is not my problem. I just, I'm, I'm they've just kind of inflated it in the, into this very public thing that it's not really shown as in any other Star Trek. You are absolutely correct. Even when the, the Section 31 agents are interviewing Bashir or something on DS9 or they're interfer- interfering with the Dominion... You never see them do that. They just you find out about it, right? Exactly. And you could you could even argue that, and oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to say this. You can even argue that Into Darkness did Section Thirty One a little bit better. Well, at least there it was secret. Now I can talk about Into Darkness as people know the fact that somehow it was still kept secret, considering how large that ship was. That's a separate talk for another day, but it was still supposed to be covert. <laughs> yeah, oh, I was kind of referring to like the installation in London and everything. Right, I was right. Like building a building a spy outpost in the middle of town, blending in. I'm like, that's pretty. That's spy stuff. That we get that. Nobody yeah, was mean, supposed to know it existed. The whatever the ship was called, the dreadnought, the I don't care. The vengeance, giant blue. Yeah, the vengeance. It just how you. <laughs> yeah, this this ship is four times the size of the Enterprise, and nobody's ever heard about it. I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, you're right. But this, at least the spy aspect, I thought they did better. And at least, you know, I don't know. Now Ash Tyler's just wandering around. And like you said, everybody knows what he is. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It was just kind of a weird, a weird episode overall. Yeah, um, I mean, and they, like you said, they kind of bubble wrapped and resolved the Tilly May issue pretty quickly. You know, I thought there was going to be like a whole romping adventure through the mycelial network. And there really wasn't. It was actually, they walked, she walked around for like two minutes, walked back, then the Discovery appeared, and then they went right back into the Discovery. I was kind of, and I get it, you know, I know it's expensive to show the mycelial network, but I was kind of like, oh, this could, this could be kind of neat, a monster hunt with mm-hmm. Tilly, like the one person you don't want to take on a monster hunt. Um, yeah, she's smart, but still, I would, you know, take Commander Non or something. Um, but it's so, I mean... I get it, but everything wrapped up and everything was in a bow. And again, I've seen a plenty of other podcasts and Twitter people and YouTube people talking about this. At one point, Saru was talking about that the spores are like 78% through the hall or something. Yeah. And right. then the discovery's just fine. I'm like, yeah. if they lost three quarters of hall integrity around the saucer section, that ain't good, guys. 
Well, it's not just that. Like, so the whole way that the discovery moves in and out of the network is the spinning. It you know it spins, right? Well, if how how is it possible that the mechanisms that control that have not been deteriorated? <laughs> um, plot. <laughs> like I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not like I'm not trying to be overly nitpicky here, but like if you're gonna say lines. I'm going to hear them. I'm, I'm trying to pay attention. And so, okay, 70% of the hole has been eaten through, but somehow it still spins perfectly for us to, to do a jump. I mean, fine, whatever. It's just kind of the way it is. It's one of the, it's a small, it's a small thing. Well, I think it's fair because Star Trek fans talk about this stuff and they've always talked about like ships and starships and uniforms and weapons. And Rathacon is a perfect example. Remember when the Reliant opened fire the first time and hit the engineering section? Mm-hmm. And you feel like, as Star Trek fans watching it, I feel bad for the cast and crew. I mean, I know it's fake, but it, it's still an emotional impact when I'm seeing people burn alive and get trapped and, you know, Scotty carrying his nephew to sickbay. That stuff, it's... Damaging our favorite ships is supposed to be emotional. That's why you don't want it to happen. Right. And, you know, and that was the running joke on the Enterprise, the next-gen movies is every, every movie, the Enterprise is just getting jacked up. Mm-hmm. And then it's fine. It's... But the member of the emotional impact of the Enterprise D being destroyed, even though uh, there's still no way a hundred year old bird of prey destroys the Enterprise. That's besides the point. That's a different topic. You felt something. You felt emotional impact when you're like, "Oh man, this is a ship I've known and loved for ten years," and you know, seventy eight percent of the hull's been eaten through. Oh, we're fine. I'm like, ah, I mean, at least yeah. have something happen. Have some. Have there be. It's the thing I complain about all the time. There has to be consequences to actions. That's that is reality. If there's if there's seventy eight percent of my CV joint is wearing out on my truck, I'm gonna lose a tire. <laughs> there's there's consequences for actions. I don't know, and I know I'm nitpicking, but I but love starships. I, it, it's it's something that Trek fans we talk about. We could talk about ships all the time. Well, that's the key, right? I mean, think about losing the Enterprise in the search for Spock. You know. Um, that's an emotional moment. And I don't really feel any emotion towards the ship discovery. Um, you know, so when it gets beat up, I'm like, okay, it's just, you know, and I move on, but maybe I think maybe it's your, your point here that there needs to be some permanence. Things have to matter. There have to be consequences. And so far, what have we seen? Well, they killed off Giorgio, but we got a different version of Giorgio. They, um, kill off Stamets or not, excuse me, Culber. And now we get Culber back. They threaten to kill off Saru, but he pulls through. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, they, they kill off Lorca, but he's evil. He's a bad guy, so it's okay. Um, you know, like, we haven't really lost any significant characters f- for real. No, and there's been no permanent damage to the ship. And like, do you remember in the beginning of Search for Spock is a perfect example when the Enterprise is limping in the space dock and everybody in the dock is seeing the damage the ship took? And you even have that one, I remember that one female admiral, she's kind of shaking her head in, like, shock. She's like, what the hell did he get himself into now? Because she knows it's James Kirk. And, you know, it. so, or remember right after um, Best of Both Worlds, when they're talking about repairing the Enterprise, and uh, Commander, um, oh, what's her name? She wanted Riker's job. The blonde, the Borg expert. Yeah, yeah um, I'm sorry. It's been, it's been a I'm, long... I'm blanking. I'm blanking. But they're asking time. her, how long is it going to take to fix the Enterprise? And she's like, oh, six weeks. And that's an emotional impact. It's because it bleeds over in the next few episodes. 
where they can't use the Enterprise. So I think Picard goes back and sees his family and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I'm with you, man. You used a good word, permanence. It's there needs to be results for actions, and sometimes those end results are not positive, and that's okay if it's a good story. But no, it's just I'm going to finish my rant on permanence and. Like you said, this episode kind of wraps everything up perfectly. Culber's back. Tilly's back. Uh, you would expect Tilly to have some horrible PTSD after being born and reborn and, di- and digested in a, in a sack. But maybe she's fine. You expect Culber to have some PTSD. And if he's just back to normal next week, there's going to be a lot of people going, all right, we like Wilson Cruz, but, you know, he was basically being tortured to death by spores and he had to cover himself in tree bark for you know six months or something that ain't that ain't that's gonna leave a that's gonna cause a problem yeah we need some permanence um by the way that's it's command lieutenant commander shelby that's right commander shelby commander shelby yeah um so yeah permanence and they're wrapping up stories and i know they're they're continuing to search for for spock and they've got all this (laughs) news about him and always searching for spock you know what, that damn man, he dies, he comes back, we search for him, now we're searching for him again. He's had a pretty traumatic life. He has, he has. And, you know, it's funny, because, like, I th- they know that we're waiting for this. They know that this is what we've been waiting to see as Spock. Yep, they've, you know, the untold story of Spock, I think, is the tagline for this season. And we're, we're five episodes in, and we haven't seen him yet. Nope. It's a third of the season. There's only 14 episodes this season. And I swear to God, if we get some version of like, somebody rescues him and it's like a new version of Lorca, I'm just going to, I'm just going to quit. Like, hey, Lorca's back. I'm like, all right, okay. You know what? No. (laughs) Prime (laughs) Lorca is out there. Hashtag Prime Prime Lorca. Lorca. Yeah, Prime Lorca. And, and I don't know. And then, and then we're going to have Mirror Universe Vogue or something. Well, he he was there in season one. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, just stop with all this, please. Now, I'm 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 hoping we'll start to to get look. Here's the thing: if you don't really want to kill off your characters, then then don't. Yeah, don't kill them off. Don't don't <laughs> yeah. put them in put them in harm's way, or you know, had, remember when Nog lost a leg in DS9? Oh yeah, that was that was pretty traumatic. I nobody wanted Nog to die, but he still had damage. Or Worf broke his back. Or ne- for God's ne- sake, Troy... lost lost yeah. his lungs. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, Troy gave birth to a life form because of that alien that impregnated her and then watched him die. I mean, you can have traumatic stuff happen to your characters without killing them. Especially if all you're going to do is reset the clock. Now, maybe they know what they're doing with Culber and he's going to have this really amazing story arc. And the fact that he died and came back the way he did will be significant to that story arc. So we'll have to wait and see. But as of right now, between... Giorgio, Culber, Saru, like just let's just not continuously kill off and then fake it, kind of thing. You know, I want yeah, something at else. Yeah, because at some at some point you're going to hit that point where the characters are going to be in danger and you're not going to care. Exactly. Now, one one small thing we skipped over um, in Obol for uh, for Sharon is the the retcon for why the Enterprise doesn't have this cool technology. Oh, yeah. Did, the, you ca- um, did you catch that? Um, the the ho- the holographic was communication was causing problems with the ship's computer. Yeah, so the Enterprise is in space dock because the entire holographic computer system is has crashed, and so he orders it to just be completely ripped out of the ship. 
Uh, yeah, which, again, a little throwaway line to explain why they're not using the Enterprise. But now, it's a little silly, though, because first off, I don't think he would have the authority to say that his Constitution-class ship is just not going to have that technology, number one. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Right, and then number two, that when he's no longer captain, that it wouldn't have been added when Kirk took over. So it's a little silly to begin with. I mean, there's 12 of these Constitution-class ships. You're telling me 11 of them have this technology and the Enterprise just doesn't? That that doesn't make sense to me, especially considering how significant the Enterprise is. Yeah, it's just, I know it's, uh, they're getting ships and characters into position with little throwaways. and It's a silly line, though, because at, at the end of the day, you leave the line out and let it just be you know, a, a in-universe canon problem because of real-world changes, okay? We've advanced technology. Otherwise, now I have to ask questions like, well, okay, so what about any other ship that we see then? Like, I don't know, the Reliant, if, for example, or the Grissom in, in the movies, or the Excelsior, or any of the TNG ships in Voyager and DS9. Like, none of these ships have holographic communications until the, the Dominion War, and then there's some stuff in the Dominion War um, on the Defiant. But that's pretty far into the future, right? So it, it's just it's, that opens up a, a bigger can of worms for something that's really a real-world problem and not an in-universe problem. Especially when you could have had... There's literally a 30-second solution to why they're not using the Enterprise. The Enterprise sustained heavy damage to their warp core in combat with the Klingons. Boom. They're doing a three-month rebuild on the warp core. Problem solved. That's a, I think I swear they've done that on other episodes of Star Trek. Sure. Yeah, there's tons of throwaway lines, you know? It's getting a computer refit or, you know, whatever. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, the fact that they want... They, they That the Discovery has the spore drive, I think, is good enough reason. Yeah. We need the spore drive to figure out what's going on with these signals, so... Right? Like, that, that seems like the, the better reason... <laughs> You know, you don't even need to explain the Enterprise away at that point. But, you know, they did. So what are you going to do? Well, I think we've ranted enough. Good rants. (laughs) So, okay, so how Um, would you grade Saints of Imperfection? um, I I know I'm going to be the unpopular one. I got to give it like a a C minus. That's fair. Um, I'm going to give it a B simply because I, I still think there's some good stuff that happened in there. Uh, I just think that the timing wasn't good. I probably would have liked the episode more if it had been in three or four episodes from now. Um, on our Twitter poll, it was still fairly popular. 48% gave it an A, 39% gave it a B. So the exact same percentage of people from A Noble for Sharon and Saints of Imperfection gave it a uh, B or higher. Um, yeah. and 9% gave it a C. So, you know, it was actually in general liked a little bit more than the previous week's episode, though I'm concerned that people may have downvoted an Oval for Sharon because of the intensity surrounding Saru. Yeah, I'm thinking you're right along lines with that. It's just, this episode was fine, just too much stuff. The Culber coming back and the use of Section 31 and... All this stuff, and again, no ramifications for Tilly, and no ramifications for the ship. It's just, you know, I'm not going to stop watching Discovery because I didn't like one episode. I mean, every every one of our listeners has heard me rant about episode or seasons one and two of Next Generation. I'm going to keep watching Discovery. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, all right. Well, then, so next week we have The Sounds of Thunder. So we'll have to wait and see what that's all about. Yeah, the, uh, the again, another good trailer preview because it doesn't give up too much of the story. And Discovery's been doing a pretty good job with that where the trailers are actually pretty decent trailers. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, a lot of movies anymore. Like, hey, I kind of, I already know the plot somewhat. But, so we'll see. I mean, it was, it was you know, this is the first time we've done two episodes at once and we talked a lot. But I think we covered a lot of good grounds, a lot of good territory today. Absolutely. So for those of you out there, you know, if you want to find us and talk to us, you can find us on Red Shirts Pod at, on Twitter. And another really easy way of finding us is you can just go to Google or any of your favorite search engines, whatever it is, and literally search Red Shirts and Runabouts or the Heroes Podcast Network. We're actually getting a few more, uh, some a little bit more visibility on that. So the search engines are picking us up pretty easily. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, uh, a few of you have been engaging with me now and then. I know my opinions aren't always popular, but hey, I like, I like ContraPoint. Uh, you can find me at the underscore bittersteel on Twitter. Derek, buddy, how can people find you? Well, I am the Star Trek dude on Twitter. I love talking to people as well. And uh, the show is actually now on Spreaker as well. So you can go to Spreaker and look up uh, Red Shirts and Runabouts, or you can look up the Heroes Podcast Network, and there's all of our episodes are up there as well if you would prefer to stream or download from their app which you can download on your iOS and Android devices. Very nice. I like that. We're getting more outreach out there. And again, everybody remember, um, we got Planet Comic Con coming up next month. So if you're in the Kansas City or the Midwest area and you're going to be there, we're actually going to be doing a a live show recording at at Planet Comic Con. It's basically the largest Midwest convention uh, for all things science fiction and comic related. So you'll, uh, you'll be able to see us and our... We'll be wearing our dashing Starfleet uniforms, of course. <laughs> if I can fit into mine. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're getting ready for the wedding. You're doing a good job. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're doing the Ultimate Star Trek crew. So this is a audience participation panel where you will help us build the Ultimate crew out of basically all of the Star Trek shows. So Disco characters, TOS, TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise are all... Um, eligible uh we're not including the kelvin timeline because it's the same characters as as tos we're not picking actors we're picking characters so um help us do that we've done this panel before and it's a really good time so i hope you will join us for that and that's it all right everybody we'll tune in next week uh when we're jumping into some more discovery episode reviews and see what news comes out between now and then sounds good catch you all later red shirts and runabouts is part of the heroes podcast network and is hosted by Gregory Bosco and me, Derek Mayer. The music is by Flying Killer Robots. Please follow us at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter or at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or HeroesPodcast.com. You can subscribe to our show on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, and pretty much any other podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please support us. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash heroes podcasts, and we also have a coffee ko-fi.com slash heroes podcast. We'll catch you next time. Live long and prosper.